Good morning, Bridgeway. Hey, it is great to see you. Welcome, welcome. Glad you're with us. Want to say hello to those of you watching online. We're glad that you are with us as well. If we haven't met, my name is Brian Kiley. I am the Director of Connections here at Bridgeway and very excited to jump into God's Word with you today. We are in part 85 of our Being Jesus series. If you're newer visiting, we've, we've taken Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the four accounts of Jesus' life in Scripture, and combined them into one account. And we have been uh, spending the last uh, almost couple of years as a church walking through that together, uh, but the end is near. Uh, so like I said, today is part 85 and, and, and just have a terrific passage to, to walk through with you today. Uh, as we get going, just a quick story. I remember several years ago, uh, I sat down to talk with a gentleman who uh, at the time had recently graduated high school. See, I had just come on staff at a church where his mom was also on staff. And this young man uh, had been very involved in the church during his childhood and adolescence. But by the time I, we sat down to talk, he said that he was an atheist. So we sat down, we're chatting, we're drinking iced tea, making small talk and this and that. And then eventually we start to talk about God. So, so I asked him, I said, tell me, tell me about this God who you no longer believe in. And he told me about how, how when he was growing up, he used to do all sorts of stuff for God. And how he was really genuine about the things that he did. But that then something happened. God let him down. See, there was something that was really important to this young man. And God took it away. And he wouldn't give it back. And no matter how much he prayed, no matter how much he asked, God wouldn't give it back. And I'm not going to tell you what the thing was, because for some of us, we would hear and, and we'd sort of laugh. And like, that, that's really silly. But for some of us, we'd say, okay, yeah, I get that. That's significant. But what it was wasn't the point isn't the point. What is the point is what he had done is he had done something that so many of us are inclined to do. See, he had created a false God. He had created something that he felt he absolutely had to have for his life to be worth living. And then when God took it away, he was devastated. And that's what happens. If, we, if you and I, if we create false gods and they get taken away, we're devastated. And God's failure to intervene on his behalf in this instance, God's failure to give him back what he wanted, was enough for him to conclude that God didn't exist. So I'm listening to all this, and I asked him as sensitively as I can ask, a question such, of this, such as this. I just said, hey man, listen, honest question. Where did you get the idea that God is supposed to serve you? And he kind of shrugged and he said, I, I don't know. I guess I just thought that if I do stuff for God, then he was going to do stuff for me. And I said, well, and I, well, first of all, how many, don't raise your hand, but let's just be honest, how many of us have fallen into that way of thinking at some point or the other? That God, I'm going to do these things for me, so here's my, here's my list. Or excuse me, I'm going to do these things for you, so here's my list, right? How many of us have fallen into that way of thinking? And if, we, and if you have, you know there is absolutely no joy in that. God who desires for us to find joy in serving him, there is absolutely no joy if we serve God with sort of in the back of our minds, all right, God, I'm going to serve you, but I, I, I want these things in return. So I just said to him, I said, listen, man, I just said, 
you and I agree on, on one thing, that's for sure. The God you are describing does not exist. The God you are describing does not exist. There is no such thing as a God who is required to give us what we want when we serve Him. And I, I even I pointed Him to a passage in the New Testament, Philippians chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul, writing as a prisoner, chained up in a hot, stale Roman prison cell, penned these incredible words where he says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And I told him, I said, listen, like the promise of our faith is not a life without pain. God doesn't promise us a life without pain. But what he does promise us is that he'll bear with us in our pain. What he does promise us is he gives us the resources in himself to endure times of hardship and to endure times of blessing with the same joy. Maybe not the same happiness, but with the same joy. He he promises us a peace that surpasses understanding. And if, if God is... With us, Paul says, we can endure all things. And I told him, I said, listen, I said, if you, and I'd say this to to, to any of you, if you doubt the God of the Bible, that's fine. I have no issue with that. I mean, there are answers to your questions if you want them. That's a critical part, by the way, if you want them. But I said, listen, you got to understand, you are doubting a God who doesn't exist. You're doubting a God who bears little resemblance to the God of the Bible. And I wish that story had a happy ending, but it really doesn't. He and I would continue to get together periodically, and there were a lot just deeper issues he was, he was working through, and I tried to help him with some stuff for the time that I was living in that town on staff with that church. But I tell you the story, because one of my most firmly held convictions I hold not only as a pastor, but just as a human being, is that poor theology hurts people. And here's what I mean by poor theology, because I'm going to use that term a lot today. I just mean misunderstanding God. Understanding God inaccurately. I believe that that hurts people, and I'll give you an example of why. When we misunderstand God, when we have poor theology, we believe things about God that are not true. And when we believe things about God that are not true, we will think God has promised us things that he has in fact not promised us. And then we will become angry with God for failing to keep promises that he never made us in the first place. And that devastates people. And the answer to poor theology is good theology. The answer to misunderstanding God is understanding God rightly. Now, I'm not saying we're going to understand God fully, at least not in this life, but I'm saying the the, the right answer to misunderstanding God is understanding God as he is revealed in the scriptures. But life has taught me that more often than not, people who are given poor theology, when that poor theology doesn't work for them, they don't seek out good theology, they just go, no theology. They just say, well, I guess this isn't, Legit. 
And, and, and there are so many examples of different sorts of poor theological beliefs that I've seen. Again, the man in the story. He thought that if he served God, God would give him what he wanted. And that, by the way, just so we're clear, that is not called serving God. That's called using God. And that doesn't really work, right? There's nothing we can do to make God owe us. But this poor understanding of God jacked up his faith. Or, or I've talked to so many people who have, have struggled in their relationship with God because they say, well, I don't feel God. I just don't feel him. And I can sympathize that with that a little bit. But I th- here's just my honest question. Where did we get the idea that we're supposed to feel God all the time? I mean, some of you do. And I hear your stories. That's incredible. I love, man, it's amazing that you, just, you feel the sense of God's presence with you all the time. I'll just be honest. That's not my experience. I love that it's your experience if it is, but it's not mine. Do I feel God sometimes? Sure. But not all the time. And that doesn't really bother me. That's that, you know, God doesn't owe me this overwhelming sense of his presence. And where did we get the idea that our faith was based on our feelings to begin with? But people say, well, I don't feel God, so I guess he's not real. Or, or nearly all of us know someone or have at least heard a story of somebody who walked away from God because of a period of suffering. They were unprepared to suffer. And they concluded that a good God would not allow suffering. So because of the suffering they are experiencing or observing, God must not be real. When the truth is, the Bible paints a picture of a world of suffering. The Bible paints a picture of a world where there is suffering. If I, I'll just be honest with you. If I were to read the scriptures and, and, and read what it says about the state of the world and then look out into a world in which there was no suffering, I would have a very hard time believing the Bible. Because because that is simply not the world the scriptures describe. We've said here at Bridgeway that one of our values is knowing God. That we want to be a people who are pursuing an intimate, accurate, growing relationship with him. That, That means we want to know God as he truly is. That means we want to know who is he really without projecting our ideas about who he should be or ought to be on him. And this issue is so deeply personal for me because I've been in too many conversations with people who are disappointed or disillusioned with God. Too many conversations of people who have walked away or who are on the verge of walking away. And the reason why all of that happened is because God had failed to deliver on things he never promised in the first place. They had been given poor theology, often by well-meaning people. And when that poor theology failed them, as poor theology always does, they walked away. See, I want us to understand, Jesus came to set us free, but, but poor theology keeps us in bondage. Jesus came to give us hope and peace that will endure through the storms of life. That's what we're going to talk about today. But poor theology is, I like to call it, a house of cards faith. Like any little, and the whole thing collapses, right? Uh, Jesus came to give us real, lasting hope, but a, a misunderstanding of God, poor theology, gives us misplaced hope. See, the young man in the story I told at the beginning had misplaced hope. He had hoped in God giving him what he wanted. 
When the hope of the gospel is so much better than that. That God might not give us what we want, but he gives us what we need. That, that things might not always be easy, but we can know that he will never leave us nor forsake us. We can know that, that our greatest enemies have been defeated. We can know that life might beat us down. Uh, but as we'll see today, there is one who has overcome the world in our place. And that one offers never-ending, eternity-shaping, life-transforming peace. In the passage we're going to look at today, we'll see Jesus preparing his disciples to go on without him. In fact, we're just going to be, it'll be one passage in the book of John, and this is the last teaching segment that Jesus has in the book of John. The, the chapters that follow are, are one long prayer, and then uh, from there he, mo- he, he moves on and it's the end of his life. This is the, the last teaching segment. And as we w- look through this passage, I want us to understand one thing, and it's the fill-in on the sheet in front of you, and it's this, that only the peace of God is greater than the troubles of this life. That only the peace of God is greater than the troubles of this life. You and I can look for peace in a thousand different places, but it's only the peace of God that is greater than the troubles of this life. Our God is a God who offers us peace, peace through the assurance of his love, Peace through the assurance of his faithfulness. Peace through the assurance of his ultimate victory. And it's that peace that's going to see us through. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to John chapter 16. It's on page 902 on the Bibles underneath the seats in front of you. John chapter 16, page 902. We're not going to have it up on the screen since it's only one passage. And again, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. Uh, Things get a little bit confusing at the very beginning. We're going to work through this passage somewhat quickly uh, because, in my humble opinion, the best part is at the end. So here we go. Uh, Chapter 16, verse 16, Jesus says this, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Now, what's going on here other than the same thing being repeated like seven times? Uh, (laughs) Jesus is talking about leaving and coming back. He's talking about his resurrection, and his disciples are totally confused. You have to understand, resurrections were as common in the first century as they are in the 21st century. So this is a very difficult concept for Jesus' disciples to get their heads around. So he's talking, they're saying, guys, what is he talking about? And Jesus says, hey, I'm right here. I can hear you, and I know what you're thinking. So... Let me, let, me, let me explain this to you. Verse 20. Listen up, this is deep. See, I can do, I've been listening, I know. Lance does that. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's what Lance has taught us truly, truly means. Listen up, this is deep. I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Jesus says his death, though devastating for his disciples, will actually be a cause of celebration for those who oppose him. But, but listen to what he says next. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. 
But when she has delivered the Bible, or <laughs> delivered the Bible. <laughs> You're not sure what to say. Be Jesus, Bible. You know. When she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Throughout the Old Testament, this metaphor of childbirth is used to describe the anguish that God's people were going to go through as they awaited deliverance, as they awaited a Messiah. It's a very, obviously, very visceral metaphor, and Jesus uses it to describe the the grief and anguish that his disciples will feel when he goes to the cross. But then he says, your sorrow is going to turn into joy. Yes, there's going to be sorrow, but when I come back to life, there's going to be joy. Much like when the anguish of childbirth is turned into joy when the baby is born, and the anguish fades to the background and all that is remembered is the joy. That, by the way, is the only reason any of us have younger siblings, right? Is because you remember the joy. The pain is forgotten, but the joy is remembered. And the joy of seeing the resurrected Jesus will cause the pain of his death to fade in the background. But we've got to understand that Jesus is saying, listen, there is going to be pain. There, you are about to walk through something that is going to be incredibly difficult. But the promise of our faith is that that pain is temporary. The promise of our faith is that the struggle is temporary. The, the promise of our faith is that ours is a God who knows our pain, who is acquainted with grief, who knows what it is to suffer, who is, who is with us in our suffering, and he will not waste our suffering, and he is at work in our suffering. I, I love the perspective of the Apostle Paul who writes in 2 Corinthians 12.10, For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses. I don't know about you, I just don't know that I've had a time where I'm feeling especially weak and I'm like, this is awesome. I'm so content in my weakness right now. But listen to what he says. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, my weakness brings me to the end of myself. My my weakness exposes the limits of my capabilities so I can no longer rely on myself. I have to rely on my Father. See, weakness exposes our reliance on the temporary. And Paul says, when that weakness is exposed, I find real strength because I look to my Father, not to myself. And we just read, Jesus says that you will have sorrow now, but I'll see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. He says, I'm going away, but I'm coming back. And when there's, when I come back, there will be joy, untouchable joy. See, you and I have to understand, there is temporary joy we can find all sorts of places. And then there's untouchable joy. And poor theology, a poor understanding of God, will will lead us to focus on temporary circumstantial joy. Temporary circumstantial happiness. Whereas good theology points us to untouchable joy. Joy found in the giver. Joy that helps us to see Jesus for who he truly is. Good theology points us to the person and work of Jesus, which is a warm blanket for our souls in plenty and in want. See, see, what good theology, what a proper understanding of God will do is it points us 
to the proof of God's unfathomable goodness and kindness, the cross of Jesus Christ, and the subsequent empty tomb, where God's own son died the death we should have died, and then rose, showing that he had conquered our greatest enemies, Satan's sin and death. That is where real joy is found, embracing those truths. That is where real peace is found. That is the peace of God that is greater than the struggles of this life. It's joy that no one can take from you and no one can take from me. Because listen, I, this might sound like a weird thing to say, but I believe it's true. <clears throat> if you and I evaluate God based upon the struggles of this life, we will conclude that God is not good because we're all going to suffer. If we judge God's love based upon the difficulty of our lives, then we will conclude that God does not love us because we are all going to face difficulty. But here are the two truths that good theology points us to, one of which I just alluded to. That is that the proof of God's love is found not in our circumstances, but in the cross where he sent his son to die for us. And then the second truth is this, that your suffering and mine is an essential part of God's good plan for us. A plan that values our long-term holiness over our short-term happiness. God very well might lead us down the path of suffering. And there is joy even in that suffering because suffering, as Romans 5 says, produces endurance and endurance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through His Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God will use our suffering to perfect his work in us. God will use our suffering to do a work in us that would not be possible without our suffering. A few members of our staff recently went to a conference for Christian counselors and they came back and one of them, our soul care director, Laura Fodry, was sharing with our staff some of what they learned, and she shared this incredible quote that she heard uh, from a woman who has experienced incredible suffering, but, but God has used her suffering to bring about an amazing ministry. She said this, she said, don't ask why with clenched fists, ask why with open hands. Not, oh God, why is this suffering come into my life? But God, for what purpose? How might you be glorified in this? What do you wish to teach me in this season of suffering. That's, and I, just, I don't know about you, I just don't know people that are walking in joy with clenched fists. I just, and you know this, if you're, if you're in the clenched fist mode right now, there's no joy there. But there's joy found with the open hands. Jesus continues, verse 23. In that day, the day of his resurrection, you will ask nothing of me. Listen up, this is deep. I say to you, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. See, up to this point, Jesus' disciples had not prayed in his name. They would pray to the Father, but they wouldn't pray in Jesus' name, because Jesus was walking among them. So Jesus is teaching them now, when you go to the Father, pray in my name. Now, I don't know, maybe you... you, you 
have a solid understanding of this. Maybe you've always wondered. This is a practice we continue to this day, that we pray in Jesus' name. We don't necessarily always say it, but we often do. We pray in Jesus' name. And you might be wondering, what, like, what does that mean? What is the point of that? And uh, I'll tell you right now, it is not simply a throwaway phrase. Uh, nor is it a pray, 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 okay, I'm almost done, amen. Right? Like, it's not a way to say we're almost finished praying. But rather, that statement or that means of approaching God is the definitive characteristic of Christian prayer. To pray in Jesus' name is to pray in the authority and power of Jesus. To, to pray in Jesus' name is to approach God on the merits of Jesus, not on our own merits. We have no merits to stand before God on our own, but, 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 but through faith in Christ, we approach God on the merits of his perfect Son. Jesus tells his disciples, pray, ask in my name according to my will and you will receive. And in praying in such a way and receiving, your joy will be made full. Now, that verse raises a lot of questions for me. I don't know about you. Ask and you will receive it. Is it really that simple? What are we supposed to do with a statement like that? Well, if we look at John chapter 14 through 16, which is one long speech Jesus gives his disciples, Jesus talks about prayer three times. And in briefly looking at each of those three, we can kind of understand, okay, what, what, what are we to make of this ask and you will receive stuff? So first in John chapter 14, verse 13, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So what exactly is meant by whatever? Is that absolute? Does that mean whatever? Well, I know that's not your experience and it's not mine. So what are we to make of that? I would say, uh, no, that whatever is absolutely not absolute. And I'll tell you why. The purpose of prayer that Jesus gives is that the Father would be glorified in the Son. That the purpose of answered prayer is the glory of God. And there are plenty of prayers that you and I could pray that would not bring about the glory of God. Oh God, please don't let her find out about my unfaithfulness. In Jesus' name. Come on. Right? Or the million other sort of selfish prayers that we might pray. Or, or listen to this, this, I promise you I'm not making this up. Uh, several years ago, uh, some high school friends of mine and I uh, flew out to Wisconsin because one of our buddies had met a girl from Wisconsin and was getting married out there. So, so we fly to Chicago, get in really late at night, drive a couple hours uh, to this house we were going to stay at. Some family uh, that were friends of the bride, who we didn't even know, let alone know her friends. So complete strangers. We get in at like 2 in the morning. There's just like a note like, hey, we're asleep. Just go to sleep and be quiet. You know, whatever. So we wake up in the morning. And as we're having breakfast, as simply as if she was telling us what the weather would be like that day, this woman, who is kind of the woman of the house, says to some of my friends, Oh, yeah, and uh, my neighbors next door, they're evil. Uh, so what I like to do is I stand outside on my patio and I pray the Psalms of David, where David is asking God to destroy his enemies. And I pray that over my neighbors. Oh, wait, it gets better. And I try to call down fire from heaven on their house. In Jesus' name. <laughs> I don't know if she prayed in Jesus' name or not. But I'm like, okay, um, like I really want to give you the benefit of the doubt on this one. And I don't know your neighbors, 
But I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, that's probably not a prayer that's going to glorify the Father through the Son. You get what I'm saying. John chapter 15. Prayer is meant to bring glory to God. John chapter, John chapter 14 calls us, uh, tells us. John 15, beginning in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. A purpose of prayer then in John 15 is that we would bear greater fruit as disciples of Jesus. So a prayer that will lead to greater fruitfulness for us, uh, for his sake, is a prayer that God is eager to answer. And then we just read in John 16, Jesus asks, Jesus says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. That the purpose of prayer is the glory of God through God-centered, God-given, God-exalting joy for you and for me. So when we go to the Lord in prayer, we can trust that God will respond in a way that will glorify the Father through the Son, that empowers and enables our fruitfulness as his disciples, and brings about the fullness of our joy. This is what Jesus has taught his disciples to pray in this final speech. So then he continues, verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. It was common for rabbis and Jewish teachers of the day to employ proverbs and riddles and metaphors and things of that nature. Uh, Jesus obviously embraced this with his use of story and parable, things of that nature. I have told these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you loved me and have believed that I came from God. Verse 28. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and I'm now leaving the world and going to the Father. This, by the way, verse 28, is like as clear and simple of an explanation of who Jesus is, the nature of Jesus, as you will find anywhere in Scripture. Jesus came from the Father. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was not born of man, he was born of the Father. And then Jesus came into the world. John chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus came with a mission to to live a perfect life, to to glorify God through a, a ministry of teaching and a ministry of healing. Uh, and then to, to die on the cross for our sins, rise from death, and then return to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God. This is as simple of an explanation of that as you will find. Verse 29, his disciples said, Ha Now you're speaking plainly. It's about time and not using figurative speech. Now we know you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you came from God. Jesus' disciples say, okay, Jesus, you're finally starting to make some sense. Yes, we're with you. We agree with you. We believe you came from God. You're going back to the Father. A-okay, we believe. And Jesus says, verse 31, uh, do you now believe? And you've got to understand something. Every commentary I read this week said this, that, that this is not Jesus affirming their faith, right? That the tone with which Jesus is asking this question is sort of like this, if I can illustrate it. Uh, uh, several weeks ago, I was driving home, and I got home. I pulled into my driveway, and I got my four-year-old son out of his car seat, set him on the, the ground. He's walking around. I walk to the end of the driveway uh, to get the mail, get the mail, and I walk back up. And in the time it took me to walk to the end of the driveway and walk back up, my son had climbed into the driver's seat, buckled uh, the seat belt, and put his hands on the wheel. Don't worry, I had the keys. It was cool. And, and he looks at me, and he says, I'm going to drive the car. 
And I looked at him and said, oh, you're going to drive the car, question mark. Right? I don't think you really know what you're talking about. And you don't really know what you've gotten yourselves into. That's what Jesus is saying. Verse 32. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Jesus is saying to his disciples, this is something maybe for for us just to be aware of today. He's saying, do you realize your faith is about to be tested beyond anything you can imagine? Do you realize you're about to experience something that is going to test your faith like nothing you've experienced before? You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be alone. You're going to be scared. But then he says, verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Where is peace found that is greater than the troubles of this life? Why has Jesus taught his disciples to pray? Why has he told them to abide in him? Why has he warned them of coming suffering, tribulation, and trials so that in him they may have peace? Why is it crucial to understand God rightly? I have no desire to be the theology police, but why is it it so crucial to understand God rightly? Why is it so crucial that we recognize what he has and has not promised us? Because in him we may have peace. In him we may have blessing. In him we may have wholeness, alternate translations of this word peace. In him we have peace. In him... We have security. In Him, there is a peace that the world cannot take away. And and so often, this is what happens. You and I, we want peace at work. We want peace in our marriages. We want peace in our families. We want peace in all sorts of other places. And that's not wrong. I want peace in those areas too. But the problem comes when we look for peace in those areas. And God wants us to be people who are bringing peace to those areas. That we find our peace in Him. Jesus says, in me you have peace. And you can bring that peace into every area of your life. Because listen, when Jesus speaks of peace... It is not the the peace of clear skies and sunny days. It's the peace that comes from knowing our greatest battle has already been won. It's the peace that comes from knowing our identity is secure. It's the peace that comes from knowing our destiny is secure and our final victory is secure. And I want to say it again, even though I just said it, that our identity is secure so that we don't have to go out looking for people to affirm us, but rather we can live with the quiet confidence of knowing we're children of God and then, then can seek to bless and love others instead of living desperate for their validation. This peace of God is the peace that comes from knowing that the world might do great damage to us, but that the beautiful words of the Apostle Paul ring true, that we will be struck down, but we will not be destroyed. And Jesus says, In the world, you will have tribulation. In the world, there's going to be trouble. Aren't you glad you came to church today? God bless you. Have a wonderful day. You know, in this world, you'll have trouble. That's what he says. But there's virtually no escaping it. Poor theology would deny this. 
But poor theology would say that with enough faith, we can avoid suffering. Poor theology would say, if you know all the magic words and the magic formulas and pray in just the right way, that you can avoid all suffering. Now, does God intervene in our suffering? Yes. But does he promise that there will be no suffering? No. And I just don't want to see another person walk away from God because they believed that if they had enough faith, they would not suffer. Because they believed that if God were good, they would not suffer. Because that sort of belief makes us unprepared for suffering. And there is no peace in that sort of belief. And some of you might be wondering, okay, all right, Brian, I see it. It's right there in the, in the text. In this world, you have tribulation. I got, I got you. But how would you, how would you reconcile that with, say, a verse like Jeremiah 29, 11? If you're not a Christian or not a church person, it might be helpful to know. Jeremiah 29, 11 is an extremely famous verse. And the verse says this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare. Other, other translations say plans to prosper you. Plans for your welfare and not for evil. Plans to give you a future and hope. Again, one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. And I'm bringing it up right now because it seems to contradict what we just read. So which is it? Prospering or tribulation? Those things don't really seem to mix very well. I'm generally experiencing one or the other. I don't know about you. Rarely both. But we've got to understand briefly the context of Jeremiah 29.11. And again, I'm bringing this up because misunderstanding this verse leads us to poor theology that has devastating consequences. In Jeremiah 29, here's what's happened. The people of Israel have been taken captive by an enemy people, the Babylonians. They've been taken from their homeland and they've been enslaved. And God says to them in Jeremiah 29, 7, listen, I want you to seek the peace of this city where I have sent you into exile. Seek the peace of your city. And then in verse 10, he says this, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and hope. And he goes on to speak about bringing Israel back to their land and restoring their prosperity. So what's he saying? You're all going to die in slavery. Did you catch that part about in 70 years I'll come back? He said, in 70 years you're going to be enslaved. You're going to be here for the rest of your life. But, but don't you worry, because I know the plans I have for y'all. I know the plans I have for my people. They are good plans, plans for prosperity and hope. I know that my work is going to continue. My mission, my kingdom, what I'm doing in the world, they are good plans. They're plans for welfare, plans for a future and hope. Nothing is going to be able to stop what I, the Lord your God, want to do. At Jeremiah 29, 11, it gets written on a lot of like graduation cards and things like that. And I think when we understand it properly, it becomes a very strange thing to write on a graduation card. Happy graduation! You're going to die before things get any better. But don't worry, the kingdom of God will continue 
in Jesus' name. <laughs> it's a very strange verse to write on. Don't write it on a graduation card. But I think it's an amazing verse to embrace in suffering. I think it's an amazing verse to embrace in suffering. To consider the awesome reality that you and I might suffer. You and I might lose our very lives. But God's plan for his people, God's plan for his church is not going to be stopped. So there is great hope in verses like Jeremiah 29.11. There is great promise in Jeremiah 29.11. A promise that you and I are part of something. The mission of the kingdom of God that cannot and will not be stopped. And here's the really cool part. That you and I, whether we prosper, whether we have plenty, whether we're in want, whether we have an easy life or we have a hard life, each and every one of us, and this is a personal promise, each and every one of us have an indispensable part to play and that our call is to play our part well for God's glory and our joy. Is God going to prosper you in this life? Maybe. Maybe not. He's, he's good either way. Uh, are, are you going to have a great future on earth? Maybe. Maybe not. But God's good either way. And you have a great future when Jesus returns and makes all things new and we can rejoice in that. The, the, but, but, but in many regards, we don't really know how things are going to go for us in this life. But the promise of Jeremiah 29, 11, the promise of the cross is the promise that God is with us. It's the promise that God is for us, that God has a good plan for all creation and we are a part of it. And again, I bring up this verse because poor theology hurts people. But good theology is an anchor for our souls in a world of trouble and challenges. Good theology leads us to the peace of God that is greater than the trials of this life. And, and I love, and, I, and rightly understood, Jeremiah 29, 11 fits perfectly with John 33. Because what does Jesus say? In this world you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Take heart, take courage is how the word is translated in other places. I have overcome the world. Why can we have joy in the midst of suffering? Because Jesus has overcome the world. And he has overcome the world in our place. Why can we have joy? Even as we're, we're devastated by the reality of our sin. Because Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the penalty of our sin. Why can we have joy and hardship? Why can we have the peace of God that is greater than the struggles of this life? Because Jesus has overcome the world for us. And here's why this is really good news. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. He does not say, I have overcome the world, and if you try really hard, you can too. Because that would not be good news to us, and I'll tell you why. A, a straight-A student, who is Jesus in this metaphor, saying to a C or D student, which is us on our best day, a, a, a straight-A student saying, hey, I aced the exam, and you can too. That's not going to be encouraging. That is only going to highlight the inferiority of the lesser student. So for Jesus to say, hey, I have, I have overcome for you and so can you, that's not encouraging, that's discouraging. Because if all Jesus is is a good example for us, it will only make our in inferiority all that much more unbearable. Because we can try to overcome the challenges of this world, and we can't. We can try to overcome our sin, and we can't. We'll undoubtedly fail. But Jesus is not simply a good example. 
Jesus is the Son of God. And he overcame the world, not simply for his own sake, but for our sake as well. He overcame the world, and his victory by faith is our victory. His triumph is our triumph, and that is good news. Jesus says, take heart, have courage. Your greatest enemies, Satan, sin, and death, I have stared them down and I have conquered them through my death and resurrection. I lived the life you could not live. I've died the death you should have died and my victory is your victory. You want to talk about God bringing good from suffering. Jesus' suffering is our salvation. And by his wounds we are healed. Listen, you might face, I don't know what's waiting for you on the other side of these doors. <laughs> and let's just be honest, neither do you. <laughs> you might face tribulation, but it's a temporary tribulation. Jesus has overcome the world. So a day is coming when every tear will be wiped away. A day is coming when your faith will be made sight. A day is coming when even the most heinous, wicked, terrible acts we have experienced or observed in this world will not even be a distant memory as we bask in the glory of our Savior. See, to know God rightly is to know that he does not promise a life without pain, but he promises something better than an earthly life without pain. He promises that he will take everything and work it all together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He says, a day is coming when we will look back and say, I get it now. And he promises that as we struggle, we struggle against a defeated foe because Jesus has overcome the world. And because this is true, we can have peace. Peace on the mountaintop, peace in the valley, the peace of God that is greater than the struggles of this life. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you that your peace is greater than the struggles of this life. Thank you, Jesus, for the reality that in this world we will have tribulation, but we can have hope because you have overcome the world. So I pray that we might be men and women who live with peace. Not phony peace, but real, deep, abiding peace. Knowing that our greatest foes have been defeated. Knowing that our victory is sure. Knowing that everything that would come against us in this life is temporary. And I pray that we would be people who live with peace. People who live with joy. People who live with uncommon kindness that comes from knowing you and being filled with your spirit. Thank you, God, that you give us real hope, that you don't always give us what we want, but that you give us what we need. May we abide in your love today. May we be reminded of your great love. And from that place of being loved and known by you, may we be a people who live on mission for you, for your glory and our joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend.